Travel with me to a dark and isolated farm located deep in the heart of St. Mary's County, Maryland, where the only African-American farmer and his family are being tormented by some thing stalking around their property. Can they survive? Can they protect the farm that is their very livelihood? And can they do it with their sanity intact? Are you in the mood for dark, isolated, rural horror? Are books full of ghastly green goo and reanimated corpses your jam? Then check out Mulch, the eerie inaugural novella from Maniacal Books, available today on Amazon Kindle and mcsbooks.com. Hello and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing Sandman number 25, Seasons of Mist, chapter 4. Cover date of this issue was April 1991. Art is by Matt Wagner, uh, inker Malcolm Jones III, colorist Daniel Vazo, Todd Klein again as letterer, Tom Pear as assistant editor, and Karen Berger as editor. And just before we get into this episode, I, I, I want to note for listeners that Brent is traveling, and so he's recording in a different environment than he usually does. So if there's a you know, <laughs> lower than usual audio quality, that is why, though, I don't know, maybe there will be a better than usual audio quality for that. But of course, also, we don't know. There might It might be garbage day behind you at some point, Brent. <laughs> so just a little uh, caveat there. But yeah, let's talk about this issue. Uh, this issue is an interruption to the main story of Season of Mist. We teased this last time with yeah, maybe even been talking about this for a few episodes, actually. And, you know, what we mean by that really is just that it is a largely self-contained short story set at the same time as the main events of Season of Mist. But it is also one of these stories where dream isn't involved. Uh, I'm not going to say doesn't appear, though I almost did, because that's not quite true, although that is splitting hairs. I'll let you talk about that, I guess, when we get there, Brent. Yeah, this is um, something we've seen Sandman and Neil Gaiman do in Sandman before, where there's kind of a a pause uh, in the ongoing storyline to to reflect on something else. And in his uh, Sandman companion, High Bender, in an interview with Neil Gaiman discusses this because he points out that Neil seems to have a pattern of this where he has partway through a given series an interlude in which he has kind of a almost standalone story, but it very much comments on the themes of the larger story. So that's something I think we'll be able to talk about today. But yeah, other than a one brief appearance, it's it's almost a Sandman Sandman-less Sandman comic. Yeah, something we know that we'll we'll think about again in the wrap-up episode and also the position of this story. And of course, uh Brent, you're gonna have to uh Bite your tongue about telling me whether or not this also was moved around in the uh, the Audible radio play adaptation, since I am uh, intentionally remaining ignorant of that until we have gone through all of the issues and are prepping for the wrap up episode. But that's getting way ahead of ourselves. So let's uh, let's get into the the scene by scene here. And chapter four of Season of Mist opens up with a teaser, and then at the end of it, we're going to get a tag that says six days ago and. We all know this technique, right? It's classic. And this technique requires that the teaser not make complete sense. And that way we're going to be teased, right? That we're going to want to know what actually happened six days ago in order to make sense of what it is that we're you know reading here in the, the teaser. But at any rate, we, we open with the title page and there's a large panel of two boys in an attic full of junk One of these boys is on his back, and he's not feeling well, and his name is Roland. The other boy's name is Payne, and there's something not quite right with his eyes. They don't seem to have any pupils. Also, his hands are cold. Also, he's wearing the outfit of an Edwardian schoolboy, while Roland is just wearing jeans and a sweater like it's 1990, like it's contemporary to this comic book. And they're at school. Uh, It's Sunday. They're singing in the chapel. And Roland has been up here in the attic for a few days now. And that's where we're going to cut to six days ago. But uh, before we get there, let's talk about the setup, Brent, because I'm interested in trying to understand this use of the flashback teaser. And let's just say up front here, right, that this boy pain is dead. He's a ghost. We're going to learn that explicitly in a few pages, but there are 
already some very clear indications of that in the teaser. And so my question for you, Brent, is just, you know, whether or not, I guess, you know, does Gaiman want us to know here that Payne is a ghost? Or is it just that I have read this too many times before? Is this meant to be a shocking revelation later? I don't think it is meant to be a shocking revelation. It maybe is meant to be unclear. I mean, I think one thing that causes some confusion here, Glenn, is we haven't seen Matt Wagner do art for an issue. We, we've been uh, having other artists up to this point. Um, and so having a new artist come in, there's a slightly different style that we're dealing with here. But on the other hand, maybe it for the sake of the story that Neil is telling, maybe it's not supposed to matter. It's supposed to be more. There are two boys who are in an attic. One is concerned about the other. The other is not feeling very well. And there's an assortment of kind of discarded old bits of memory surrounding them in this attic, right? In this great first panel. So uh, in this first panel, you know, we see they're clearly in an attic. Uh, there's some fun kind of arched windows, but then we've got, you know, some golf clubs and a cricket bat and a, a soccer ball if you're uh, from this side of the Atlantic and, uh, you know, football if you're uh, from uh, the other side. Um, and, you know, a picture of probably a team on an old wooden trunk that reminds me of a trunk that my parents have. Um, and then, you know, a deer's head that's stuffed and mounted, but hanging on, I don't know, a collection of desks that are stacked up or something. There's just, it's a, it's a weird collection of clearly like the attic for, uh, it could be for a person, but it looks more like, um, which we discover that it is. It's, it's more of like, this is the discarded stuff of, um, an institution, um, a, a school in this case. Right. To me, this image here itself is kind of a tease, which is, I guess, sort of one of the fun things with establishing shots in general is sort of, wow, where where are we? You know, what is this? And, and especially when you get, you know, a big pile of, of junk like this. Uh, it's, it's very cool. Something else that jumped out to me too, just in the visual here is that we are going to learn the name of this school in a little bit. We're going to learn that it is the St. Hilarion's School for Boys, but it does mean that the uh, Edwardian school uniform that we see here in the, the opening uh, that Payne is wearing has uh, an embroidered H on it. And it was hard not to think that it, you know, it, it stood for Hogwarts. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. Yeah, that was a tease that, you know, couldn't possibly have existed when this issue came out. But, you know, decades later, I, I, there was a moment of confusion there for me. <laughs> and it made me turn the page. The other thing that struck me about this, uh, this attic they're in is you know, as is the case with many addicts, it's not fully finished, right? We see the um, support beams for the floor, but there's only like a panel of wood covering, you know, a portion of the floor. Um, and so I guess that just is reinforcing the idea there's somewhere they maybe shouldn't be. But also I, I have imagined my mind thinks that there's maybe, you know, some nails sticking out here or there, or there's some insulation that the boys shouldn't be breathing in over long periods of time. Talking about the dream that Roland had, um, he uh, Charles Roland shares a quite disturbing dream that he had with Payne, in which he has blood red worms that were feeding on his arm, um, and then he remembers running, crying out into the open, but it was snowing, and then stepping on the skeletons of birds. Um, this is all very disturbing imagery, and I think it would be disturbing if it was just prose. But the fact that Matt Wagner here along with uh, the colorist and inker, have given us little panels for each of this, particularly with the worms coming out of his arm and him staring in a mirror looking at his own arm is uh, uh, quite horrifying. Um, and it seems like, you know, really terrible dreams that he has had. Um, and centered around all of these little images is the only appearance of dream that we get in the comic um, that I'm aware of. Um, which is just him there. So I guess it's letting you know that these are dreams that he's having. Um, and maybe this is not flashback, but it's also dream is kind of the, he seems upset and frustrated, but um, he's not doing anything to interlude and make things more comfortable. Obviously as, as the Lord of dreams, he could have made any of these dreams far more pleasant for Roland. And he did not do that. It's a strange choice to have this image here. I think when I'm reading through this, I see this image as just 
uh, a background as if it's not you know it's not literally related to what's happening in the dream or even you know the fact of the dream it's almost like just having a, a sort of decorative frill around the page of of a book that you're reading is sort of how i treat that but you know just looking at it now it it does look like Dream is not just maybe upset and angry. He looks downright menacing. He's actually got this pose where it kind of looks like he's staring, you know, staring into Roland, like he is intentionally sending him this dream. I'm not sure that's actually what's going on. I think that my sense that this is just supposed to, one, cue us into that this is a dream, and two, have an illustration of dream in this issue. I think that is what's happening. But yeah, if you, if you, you know, take it literally, and it looks really menacing. It looks like he's intentionally sending Roland this dream. All right. Well, at this point now, it is actually six days ago. We flip the page and we're going to get the flashback. And so it is December 1990. It's the holiday break here at St. Hilarion School for Boys, not Hogwarts, it turns out. And everyone is gone except for the elderly headmaster who is uh, wearing his uniform, of course, uh, which is a cardigan and a pipe, and then also the elderly matron. But also, Charles Rowland is still here. He's the only student still here. And the deal is that Rowland can't go home for the holidays because his father is in Kuwait. And he's there to build a hospital. He's uh, an architect, we'll learn later. But A few months ago, Iraq invaded Kuwait at the start of what we now call the Gulf War. And so Roland's father is now a hostage of the Iraqi government. And Roland's mother has been dead for a long time. And so there is nowhere for him to go. And before the plot starts, we learn that Roland is generally unhappy at this boarding school. We don't get any specifics. I'm not really sure that we need them, though. But at any rate, he says that he can't feel alone even when the school is empty. Roland just feels the presence of generations of other kids who used his desk, slept in his bed, just ran down these hallways. And this is when we start to see that, in fact, the school is filling up with the literal ghosts of dead schoolboys, not the metaphorical ghosts that Roland's just been thinking about, uh, though we're not actually going to get more on that until the next day. Also, we see Roland in the library reading The Scarlet Pimpernel. I, I don't know that I have much more to say about that, but it feels important and is a, it's a cool touch at any rate. But then we are back to the present, uh, which is to say the attic where Roland is unwell. Payne tells Roland about being dead, and he's pretty sure that he was in hell until very recently. And his experience of this was a labyrinth of long corridors that he wandered, trying to run away from something that was always just behind him, something that was silent, but also sad and lonely and terrible. And he tells Roland that Roland should be afraid of dying. Being dead is scary. And this depiction of hell, right, Payne's depiction of hell, if that's what it is, I think is really interesting, Brent, because it is not something that we have seen when we have visited hell with a dream, right? When we've done that twice now, what we've seen has been a a kind of Hieronymus Bosch landscape. We've seen, you know, demons, we've seen the souls of dead people inhabiting that Hieronymus Bosch landscape, but pain does not seem to have experienced anything like that, right? So, uh, you know, what does that tell us about hell or, or maybe just about afterlives in general in this speculative setting, do you think, Brent? I think that this is great um, that we're getting an example here of kind of a hell that is very much specifically catered to pain um, and his awareness and his fears. Um, he's worried about, you know, something chasing him, something that it may catch him. He can't do anything about it. He can't run. There's no indication that there's anyone he could appeal to. Um, and it's nice to see the kind of personalized hell that he experienced instead of just having an image, which would look like, as you said, kind of a cookie cutter relative, you know, to other images we've seen to this point of like erroneous Bosch kind of a painting or, you know, some other depiction. It's fair to say that a lot of that imagery maybe would be outside of pain's kind of awareness. Um, he probably didn't come across that in art. He hasn't, you know, isn't someone who has, you know, we're at, spent a lot of time working at a butcher or like, you know, been on the field, uh, as we'll later talk about, um, 
in World War One in the trenches or anything. This is someone whose life experience is, is very limited given when his life was cut short. Um, and so personalizing his hell to his experience and his frame of reference, but also the kind of thing that would be the most kind of terrifying for him, um, I think works really well um, in setting up this kind of larger situation. But uh, what did you think of it? Yeah, I, I had some confusion about this because, right, we've we've just not seen, you know, anything like this in hell, even though, right, we're told that you know, hell is a place where people are kind of punishing themselves in a in a way. I mean, that's, I think, kind of existentially problematic. We'll have to take that up in the wrap up episode for sure. But we haven't seen anything where it's it's kind of an you know an altered landscape where people are making their own kind of of place there. Though we are going to learn, you know, what happened to pain and and I think we'll be able to understand that this hell that he's living in here mirrors some of his experiences in 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 his life and the experience in fact that even you know leads to his his death but i do think that yeah it's interesting to think that yeah maybe this this really is hell and i think i guess we have to know that it is hell because that's the reason that they're here is because people have been kicked out of hell and so yeah i mean as you've been articulating for a while brent i think the idea that you know hell is bigger on the inside uh, in a sense right and that it's it's malleable and that it might not be the same for everybody um and and that you know, possibly even there are different types of entities in it and that we have even seen and so on. Uh, you know, that might be the thing that's being hinted at here. And we're going to get some more comments about, you know, tr- trying to get at the nature of hell, right? These two boys are going to talk about this a little bit uh, near the end of the story. And so we'll we'll take that up there as well. But I, I like this note. Uh, it did also just remind me of Scott Free's dream from way back in Preludes and Nocturnes as well. And I, I don't think that was intentional, but um, it sounded like it and it kind of looked like it as well. I mean, no, that's a good point. I think it Similarly, we've got a, a young boy of about the same age, um, and he's trying to kind of move forward through a series of tunnels, and he's alone, but he's very much in fear of what is coming after him. I think that that works. And in some ways, you know, we saw what is in Scott's Freeze, Scott Freeze kind of version of hell, at least in terms of how he was dreaming it, um, in that nightmare. And in that way, actually, it's interesting to think about, um, you know, dream is now the lord of hell as well as the lord of the dreamland. But even before nightmares, you know, there's a reason why we sometimes are talking about hell as the things, the thing of nightmares, right? Um, and so thinking about beings like the Corinthian in some ways are just as much, if not more terrifying than some of the demons that we saw in hell, right? Right. I mean, there's a question of, of you know what is the difference between you know the, these walking nightmares of, of the dreaming and the the demons of hell. I mean there are some technical differences, of course, right? But in some ways, you know the effects, at least while you are experiencing them, are very similar. And 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 yeah, pain's hell here feels like it is a nightmare, just a nightmare that he's going to be stuck in forever and ever. And uh, yeah, I mean maybe it makes some sense there that uh, you know. Maybe Dream should hold on to hell. Maybe he'd actually be good at running it because there's a you know, a bit of a Venn diagram already. Well, let's move a little bit further into the story and the flashback. And so now it's uh, five days ago and Roland goes down to the Great Hall for breakfast, but uh, it's empty. The headmaster, the matron, they aren't there. He's got some biscuits in his locker, though, so, you know, that's fine. I mean, I'd probably rather eat biscuits than whatever they're serving in the Great Hall anyway. But then also, there's no lunch. And so now he has to go to the headmaster's office to, you know, see what's up with that. I I need some food, right? And here he's introduced to the headmaster's mother. And the headmaster's mother appears to be, you know, a little bit older, maybe only a little bit older than the headmaster. And you know, no matter what else we might know, just from the visual language here, the way this is being depicted, we can tell that the headmaster is old enough that his parents ought to be dead at this point, right? And in fact, she tells Roland that she is dead just up front when she meets him. She meets this kid at the school and just immediately announces that she is dead. She also tells him that she's been in hell since her death, which was in 1942, It's also very important for her that she tell this 13-year-old boy that the reason she went to hell is that her husband, uh, which is to say the headmaster's father, used to force her to do revolting things in the bedroom. 
at this point, Roland excuses himself from this conversation, which is definitely the best course of action. And he goes up to the sanatorium to see the matron. And she has two dead babies with her. And these were her children. Uh, One of them who died shortly after childbirth and another who died shortly before childbirth. And this is a pretty heartbreaking story. We don't get a lot of details, but again, we don't really need them. I think we can sort of fill in the the emotional blanks there and and still empathize with the experience uh, that this woman had when she was much younger. But still, this is really depicted here as creepy, right? It's played for horror, I think, more than for heartbreak. And, And one of the babies even speaks. And that's the point at which, in this case, Roland gets out of here. And at this point now, there are ghosts everywhere. We know that this is because hell has been shut down, as we've said. And so, you know, there are ghosts you know, everywhere on the on the planet. But Roland does eventually manage to fall asleep in his bed, even though the dorm is, is lousy with ghosts. And so now we cut back to the present, where Payne tells Roland how he died. And he says that he was killed right here in this attic above the school chapel. And what happened is that some other boys used to come up here to perform occult rituals in order to summon devils or something like that. They killed frogs, they killed rabbits, they killed cats. And one time, they killed him. And we're going to pick up with that on the the next day. But I want to get back to the headmaster's mother, because something... Well, there were a number of things that made me profoundly uncomfortable about the headmaster's mother, Brent, I guess. (laughs) But something that, that, that confused me is that... I actually just don't think she's depicted as the correct age here. And I wonder if you can walk through this with me, point out where I'm wrong. I'm I'm hoping. But, you know, she says that she died in 1942. She looks to me to be about 70. And so in 1942, then, the headmaster would have been about 40 or 45, which would then make him almost 90 now, which he does not appear to be. And so... My thinking is that either the mother should look younger, right? It ought to be the case that she uh, should have died when she was middle-aged, or Gaiman should have just picked a date later than 1942. Uh, this is something that didn't jump out to me, you know, my first read for this episode, but then my second read through, and I was really, you know, trying to engage with the story on a critical level. It, it confused me. It disturbed me. I thought I was missing something. You might have picked up on something I did not. I have that she died in 42, but I don't know how old the headmaster was the time that she died. Well, I'm making that math just based on how old a a person who died in 1942 uh, would have been having children. And so I just think it's reasonable to assume that she was in her 20s. um, Or certainly in her 30s, right? And so in either case, I think that he would have to be, he's much older. He would have to be much older with this math than he's depicted as, or and certainly much older than I think a person would be still working. I, I think that perhaps her looking younger would have been the way to go, maybe to convey the age she would have been, or I, the easier fix would probably be to make him clearly look older. Um, he, I think, is depicted in the art as being someone who just doesn't look as old as you think he would be. And I think in some ways it might've worked better even for the horror that they're going for here in terms of this is the the headmaster who is not as domineering as the uh, uh, headmaster we'll see later in the issue, but still um, probably is fairly domineering, but to have him very much under the sway and being kind of, you know, infantilized by his the ghost of his dead mother. Um, it would have worked better had he been significantly older himself. If he had appeared to be, you know, very old, then that maybe would have helped. But yeah, then I understand. I see what you mean in terms of the depiction for her in the art. I think it also just would have been more disconcerting to see her be younger than him, right? That would be kind of a a David Lynch moment, right? Where this woman who's half his age is describing herself as his mother, right? That would have been, I think, you know, a cue. I think if this, well, and I guess perhaps we'll find out, right? If, If, you know, this were to be adapted for the screen, that that would be a great choice to make in order to, you know, cue the audience into the the horror of that, that something's unsettling is going on, right? Because at this point, Roland still doesn't know that 
you know, literal dead people are are back, right? He doesn't know that at this point. So I think that's a choice I would make. I think if I were adapting adapting this, would be to uh, go for the visual language of that. I also then think that the future scenes that we're going to get, and I hope not spend a whole lot of time on because they're downright unsettling, but I think would make them even uh, even creepier. And I don't know why there was the need to have her die in 1942. I think that you know wanting to refer to the terrible things her husband had her do in the bedroom and then, you know, referred to it as the Hunnish practices, you know, as someone who is English and, you know, lived through World War II, you know, you might have. Right. Well, lived through World War One. That's that's because that's when that term was being uh, uh, applied, right? But she's certainly in 1942, she's died in the middle of that. And yeah, perhaps, you know, we're meant to, you know, if, if well, if she looked middle-aged, then it would actually give us an explanation for why she died in 1942 as well, right? Yeah. Like, like, oh, this is someone who died in the Blitz or, you know, in some other way related to the war. We don't necessarily have to um, infer some kind of illness, you know, or something like, like that. So it feels like giving that date was meant to explain something. Thing to us that just doesn't show up here in the art. And I, I guess I take it that, that Bender and Klinger don't have anything to say about this issue that I have gotten obsessed with. No, they neither of them have a comment on this. Um, I, yeah, <laughs> it is something that's – yeah, because I don't know – because even if you if you lived through either World War One or World War Two, you might have animosity towards German people <laughs> – even if it's now 1960 or 70. And so I don't, it doesn't seem important that she would have died in 42 versus picking any other year. And it, it's always interesting to me. And, you know, perhaps he's just somewhere else because it's a matter of, and we'll, you know, we can talk about this about where you end up when you've come back to Earth from hell, but she's there, but her husband is not there. So it's not that they're both drawing to the sun. Right, because what we're going to learn is that for the most part, people are are showing up where they died, and so we could perhaps think that you know she died here. But there is this other thing that's happening where people are also showing up uh, near people that they're connected to, and I think that that's the the assumption we have to make here. Right, is that she shows up where her son is because she has this uh, you know these intense feelings about her son but yeah does not she doesn't show up where her husband is and the husband also doesn't doesn't show up here where the son is and that certainly is telling us something about their family dynamic well, let's move to the next day. So that then makes it four days ago. So we've done six days ago, we've done five days ago, now four days ago. And Roland is awoken in the middle of the night by three dead boys. They're all a little older than him. They're probably 17 or so. And their names are Cheeseman, Barrow, and Skinner. And they're bullies. They are also the same kids who killed Payne. And we're going to get more on them later. Because right now, actually, they're interrupted in their bullying by the ghost of a former headmaster. Uh, this is Headmaster Parkinson. He died here in the school in 1916. And so, now that he is back, he is resuming his duties. And he's got an assembly full of dead students. Uh, though also, the very living student of Charles Rowland. And today, he's going to have everyone sit in a silent study hall while he you know, works out a curriculum and that sort of thing. But make no mistake, there will be discipline in this school. Uh, I'm giving a very mild version of the speech that he actually gives there. But what this amounts to is that Roland now finds himself not as the only student stuck at school over the winter holiday, but he finds himself as the only living boy in a school for dead people. And because it's a school for dead people, there's no need for meals. And so after lights out, Roland sneaks down to the kitchen to try to find some food. And that is when the bullies show back up. That is where the bullies get him. And they're mad. Uh, they're mad because they got in trouble for killing Payne. They never actually got in any legal trouble for it because Payne's body was never found. And officially, he was just a missing student. But Headmaster Parkinson knew that they were involved somehow. I mean, you know, we say knew, he says knew, but I think, you know, strongly suspected, uh, intuited perhaps is, you know, really what's happening there. But at any rate, he expelled them. And that expulsion led to each of their early deaths, uh, two of them actually from diphtheria and the other in the trenches of the First World War. 
But they're also angry because they sacrificed a person to the devil. That's the kid, Pain. And they did this following some rituals in some old books. But what they're angry about is that nothing happened. They all went to hell when they died. And when they got there, the demons didn't know anything about it. They didn't care about it. They even laughed at these boys. And so, of course, right, what happens now is that they take their anger out on Roland, who is seriously injured in this attack. I mean, they burn him, they stab him. It's pretty gruesome. It's gruesomely depicted. He's in bad shape. They leave him lying on the kitchen floor, and Payne finds him and then helps him up to the attic. We'll pick up there next and then also take the issue home. But I want to talk about these boys and their relationship with the occult, Brent, because you know, the dates here, right? All of this having to do with or intersecting with the First World War. This really makes me want to believe that these bullies are actually the sons of members of Roderick Burgess's order, and that that's where they got a hold of the books that they're using in their occult rituals here. I, I want that to be my headcanon. <laughs> I like the headcanon, Glenn. Uh, I think that even if they aren't the, the offspring of members of his order, they certainly are inspired by. Because we remember we saw that it was frequently, you know, uh, set up uh, that the press was covering what was going on with Burgess and his his cult um, and members of it. Um, and so perhaps you know, hearing about how there is some you know grand mag- magus who is you know able to. Uh, try to capture demons and make deals with things and do sorcery inspired the boys to do a little bit of their own uh, side hustle. Yeah, well, that's that's what I'm going to choose to believe until we, uh, well, I guess we, we would never maybe get a sort of negative proof of that, really. But uh, it does make me want to be on the lookout for sort of more about the members of Roderick Burgess's order. And maybe we'll get some of that in the, you know, the, the television adaptation. Something else about these boys, too, that that, that stands out to me in the, the, the drawing is, uh, and I promise I'll try not to do too much more of this, but just is that, I mean, these are basically Malfoy, you know, Draco Malfoy with Crabbe and Goyle. There's a reason for that which is that game in here and then also J.K. Rowling are, are drawing on the long tradition of, of, of school stories, the long tradition of school stories in English literature. But um, Cheeseman here is blonde, right? Which is like, that's Draco Malfoy. And then we see these other characters who you know look fairly oafish in the way that Crabbe and Goyle are also depicted. And, and again, it's because they're drawing on source material, the same source material, but uh, it's it's interesting to go back and read this, you know, from a point of view in which Harry Potter has suffused, uh, you know, the very air that we breathe now. These are muggle Slytherin, if you will. <laughs> That's um, exactly right. <laughs> and what I found interesting was uh, we did earlier saw Roland sitting in front of a memorial to um, the uh, students of the school who had passed away during the Great War. Um, and we, he's blocking some of the names, so we don't get to see how far it goes, but we definitely get to see that Barrow and Cheeseman are listed there. Um, so even though there's a reference to Barrow, uh, passed away from diphtheria, he apparently died in some connection with the Great War. So I don't know if he got diphtheria when he was, you know, being shipped off to it or if he, you know, contracted it in the trenches and he just died not in the trenches. It was, it was, it was kind of a strange setup for me because I was just like, okay, but they mentioned one boy dying in the trenches, but we saw two of the names on that memorial. You know, I think that that must be right, that, you know, one of them definitely died in the trenches, but that, yep, presumably, actually, both of these cases of diphtheria were contracted in in the war. This is a a time when diphtheria is something that was uh, spreading in the trenches. I mean, the trenches were terrible places to live, right? People were living in these trenches that have a, you know, a foot of water in them, uh, you know, almost all the time. You're in close contact with people. You're not getting enough rest. You're malnourished, right? I mean, it's a terrible place to live. So people were in very poor health in addition to being in these, these violent situations. And so, yeah, I, I, I easily would believe that the diphtheria is something that he contracted in the trenches. And so, yeah, therefore, uh, even though we're all that, that is only applied to, you know, one of the boys here, as we learn in, in this moment, uh, but that the diphtheria itself is, 
you know, came from their service in the war. But I, I hadn't noticed that uh, before. Though I'm glad you brought up that memorial. I was going to bring it up in our our favorite panels. It's not my favorite panel, but it was definitely something I wanted to to, uh, to mention. Just this this war memorial. Uh, these are something that uh, you find everywhere in the UK and and elsewhere in Europe, of course. These memorials for uh, the First World War, uh, but you especially find them at at schools in the UK. I think it's always good to see the the reality of that. De- depicted here. So I, I appreciate that that found its way into the issue. Regarding the um, English boys boarding school kind of amalgam, we do have a little bit of information on this from the script itself that Leslie Klinger uh, gives us gives us an excerpt from in the um, annotated Sandman that I thought I would share with you. Uh, Neil Gaiman noted in the script, quote, I'm setting the story in an English boys boarding school for a couple of reasons, one of which is just not feeling in control of the U.S. school system enough, but being certain I could do the U.K., and the other is simply the sense of time and history we can get out of the U.K., which, after all, has more of a history of institutionalized sadism, torture, homosexuality, and pain built into its educational system than the U.S. equivalent. The school itself will be an amalgam of a few that I attended, plus a few fictional schools from literature, plus the sort of nightmare accretion of schools that I've built over the years into what I imagine as school when I dream of, for example, this is the kind of school I'll dream of. Um, and in High Bender's Sandman Companion, in an interview with Neil Gaiman, um, Neil goes on to say, that uh, in many ways, uh, this is kind of close to an auto, auto, uh, autobiographical story for himself, um, in which Roland very much kind of is uh, has the role that he has that that he kind of you know depicted himself in um, in this way. Obviously, not being uh, tortured and killed, but um, Neil Gaiman says, "quote uh, Aside from the fact that everything in the story is made up." Issue 25 is autobiographical, or to put it another way, Charles Rowland is largely me, because um, this is because of his reference to what it's like from his memory of how terrible boys could be to each other in English boarding schools, plus his recollection of uh, matrons and headmasters. I mean, it's pretty clear, right, that, that Charles Rowland here is uh, a, a nerdy kid in a, a world of, of bullies, right? I mean, even though we don't see him with any other living kids. We're told already that he hates it here and wishes he didn't have to be here, right? He knows he only has to be here because his dad has this job where he's out of the country and needs someone to, to care for him. Otherwise, he could live at home uh, and, and not have to be stuck in this boarding school. And uh, yeah, you can see where yeah he's a kind of a stand-in for, for Gaiman and, and also you know for us as well, right? We identify with him. And Neil goes on in the script, which Leslie Klinger includes in the intense end man to note somewhere around um, page five of the, of the script um, that, uh, you know, I'm just beginning to realize how terrifyingly unlikely the British school system is. I mean, I'm doing my best to make it more or less user friendly here. When I was at school similar to this one, they had a gaggle of matrons led by a sort of huge battleship of a woman aided by thin desiccated women aided by a thin desiccated woman with pinched lips and demanty glasses they were assisted by three or four young village girls in their early 20s the subject of an entire school's worth of erotic speculation and daydreams none of whom would last more than a year when i hated a forthcoming lesson enough i'd go to the matron's room and complain of a headache they dis they dissolve a large white pill in water, and I drink the bitter, chalky stuff, listen to their gossip, watching them drink endless cups of tea, a tiny enclave of femaleness in the middle of this all-male enclosure. Then I'd go and sit in the old school library and read the Father Brown stories uh, by J.K. Chesterton, or Man Eaters by Kuman, uh, by hunter naturalist Jim Corbett, uh, or King Solomon's Minds by H. Ryder Haggard. Uh, with my imaginary headache felt better. Sorry about that. I'll try to keep the autobiographical exertions to minimum on this. So, anyways, it's a fun bit of uh, <laughs> Neil's commentary in the script there. 
Yeah, interesting that he didn't pick any of those writers to actually have uh, Roland be reading in the library. I mean, I think it certainly would have been great to actually have a bit of text from one of the the Father Brown mysteries. Although, just to be to be fair to that, uh, I would you know, the Scarlet Pimpernel almost certainly was out of copyright in 1991 and so could be <laughs> used. And actually, to be honest, I'm, I'm not, I don't even think that that's actually. In fact, I know it's not actually the text of the Scarlet Pimpernel. But so even I think the character of the Scarlet Pimpernel had no copyright right on it. Father Brown probably still did in the 90s. And Leslie Klinger speculates that maybe the reason why the Scarlet Pimpernel is used is because of the secret identity relationship to superhero comics. Right. Yeah. The Scarlet Pimpernel is the original man of mystery, right? He's he's the first Batman. Neil also talks a little bit with High Bender about his commentary on the smell of schools. Um, the smell of school is a strange, pervasive thing. It's disinfectant, wood polish, and ink. Chalk dust, pipe tobacco, boiled cabbage, paper flatulence, and socks is what Neil says on page four of the issue. Uh, but he notes that American schools have a very different set of spells, but they're definitely the ones from his British childhood that he uh, included in the comic. Um, so I think it's interesting to think about what smells, uh, you and I growing up at American schools, not boarding schools, but, um, would kind of associate with our experience that are similar or different. I think there was not the tobacco smell, that's for sure. Uh, but there definitely was kind of a disinfectant and, uh, often an old sock smell, particularly after it rained. Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, especially our our junior high years together at the same school, Brent, I think the smells that stand out to me are really the smells of the cafeteria, and in in particular, the just you know the smell of those gross packets of red vinegar masquerading as ketchup. Uh, it's really the smell that I think pervades pervades my memory of school. Well, before we get too far into reminiscing about uh, our own terrible lunchrooms uh, from, you know, the 1990s, let's uh, let's carry on. And, uh, and we're actually at the end now. And what happens is that Roland dies in the attic. He dies from the injuries that he sustains in this attack, or really, maybe I should be more agentive in the way I'm describing that, right? That Roland dies because these dead bullies have killed him in this in this attack. It simply took uh, a day for him to die. And so now death is here and she's come for Roland, but she's definitely not come for pain, she says, because she's already done that. And Roland refuses to go. He says he's not going anywhere without pain. And death just gives up. Uh, she's exasperated. And she says there's just way too much going on in the world right now. And so she just lets Roland stay. But she does say that she will be back for him once things settle down again, right? Once this whole you know, hell being emptied of, of dead people business is, is dealt with. And so what happens now at the end is simply that Roland and Payne, these ghosts, get the heck out of here. They're going to leave the school. They're going to go be super best dead friends out in the world until death comes back for them. Even though they know that that might not be a whole lot of time, they're going to try to make the most of it. And on their way out of the school, they pass by people doing really horrible things to each other. Uh, the headmaster is being abused by his mother, maybe even you know, we might even label that as sexual abuse. Two of the bullies are sexually assaulting the other one. And the dead headmaster, Parkinson, is teaching a class in a way that, uh, well, it makes Severus Snape seem, seem gentle, I guess. And as they pass these things, Roland says that he thinks hell maybe isn't a place, that rather it is something you carry around with you. And Payne disagrees, but he also thinks that you don't have to stay anywhere forever. And with that, then, they're outside the school grounds and into what is a beautiful, bright, sunny day with their whole lives ahead of them. And yeah, as we said, this issue was an interruption to the narrative of Dream's trouble with the deed to hell, which is the main thrust of Season of Mist. And we've had this sort of interruption before with Men of Good Fortune, and we can talk about its placement in this arc in the wrap-up episode. But I just wonder, Brent, just broadly speaking, how you enjoyed this story on its own merits, just taking it as a short story and, and setting aside any desire to get back to the main plot. I thought it was okay. It wasn't 
my favorite. I have an aversion to reading about boarding schools ever since we were forced to read books like a separate piece. When we were at school, um, I growing up in the Midwest and going to public schools, I found that I had little tolerance uh, to care much about uh, people in New England going to boarding schools, or in this case, England. Um, so I think I had a natural kind of aversion to the framing of the story. Um, I do think that the characters are um, interesting, though. You definitely get a sense of Charles Rowland, um, you know, as someone who <laughs> many of the readers will identify with as kind of, you know, bookish, who wants to just spend time quietly reading in the library and be left alone. Um, you feel bad about uh, the lack of relationship he has with his uh, father and also with his mother who's passed away. And, and your know, pain is a sympathetic character, even though we don't see depicted what happens to him. Just the description, I think, is enough. And I think it would have been over the top if we had actually seen flashbacks to him being murdered and having his blood drank from the bullies. We, we had enough kind of gruesome imagery of the torture. Um, but I think there are some parts of the story that don't really work for me all that well. Because the more I think about it, it, mainly thinking about the matron's kids, but also Edwin uh, – uh, also Payne, I'm confused why they're in hell, I guess. Because we're presented here with kind of one of the central thesis we've been presented this with before about how, you know, hell is not something that the devil is giving to you. You've kind of chosen that that's where you're going to go. We don't get any information as to why Payne thinks he would have deserved hell and maybe it's just we have to you know kind of do our own headcanon that he must think that he there's something about himself that is terrible to deserve it and i don't know if i buy that but i can you know i can make the headcanon work but with the matron's child that was never born i don't know how that entity thinks that it should be in hell it'd be one thing with the child that was born if like it had already at that point at some level been cognizant of some kind of Christian ideology about the need for baptism or something. And if it had not been baptized yet, then maybe. But again, I have to do headcanon to get that far. But with something that hasn't been born, I don't know why it would even be aware of kind of those particular hangups. But I don't know. How, how did the story work for you or not work for you? Yeah, I'll talk about that in a moment, but I, I want to address this issue with the metaphysics that you've brought up, Brent, because I think you're you're absolutely right, right? If if the way this works is we we go to hell because we think that that's where we ought to go, a, a stillborn baby or a miscarriage should not be there because they wouldn't have had that level of of cognition for for that, right? So that couldn't possibly work. And you're right, I think to suggest that the only way that really could work is to have something to do with ideas about or issues about arguments about infant baptism that exist in in Christian theology of understanding the the afterlife and 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 uh, how how we receive grace and and so on and so yeah that i think is a, a problem with the the metaphysics there i i, I think it you know maybe is more interesting about pain right thinking what did this kid do to deserve to be in hell and I, I want there to be some ambiguity about whether or not that's even where he really was, you know, given what what his experience actually was like. But the thing is that we know that hell was empty. I, I think I'm going to reserve some comments about pain until we get to the wrap-up episode, because we know already that we're going to do a, a segment there trying to exactly do this, trying to wrap our heads around the metaphysics of it. And in particular, I want to talk quite a bit about uh, about limbo. And I have some thoughts about that that might be germane to, to Payne's experience of the afterlife. But I think you're, you're definitely right that there's something not quite right with the metaphysics here. And, and that, that's a flaw. That's definitely a flaw. But I will say that I, I loved this story. Uh, you invoked uh, a separate piece by John Knowles as something we had to endure in high school. It's one of my favorite books from high school. Uh, I love these stories. I love school stories. I read British school stories all the time. I have written some of my own, uh, you know, with the supernatural element, of, of course, a weird fiction element, of course. Um, I always wanted to go live in one of these schools, either in England or, you know, in New England, like a separate piece is set. And uh, to my mind, these were a kind of fantasy place, right? This was a place where there was no family, just 
friends and teachers, which is like, that's the fantasy world I wanted to live in as a, as an adolescent. And so, yeah, I, I continue to be drawn to these stories and just kind of my feeling, having read this issue a few times in preparation for this episode, is that this is probably my second or third favorite issue of The Sandman so far. Yeah, well, to each their own. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I do like the characters of uh, Payne and Roland, um, and I don't know that we see them ever again in a Sandman comic, but uh, we do see them in their own miniseries um, where they're the Dead Boy Detectives um, that I believe uh, may be upcoming to a small screen near you soon. It's on in production in some capacity. Uh, I can't remember with whom. And also they are sort of central characters to uh, a comic book series called uh, – well, it's really a collection of uh, annuals really um, in the Vertigo imprint called the Children's Cru- uh, Children's Crusade um, where Neil Gaiman was a co-author of that in which uh, the boys are trying to figure out a mystery. So because uh, – you know, the fun thing about these two is they head off into the world of, of their undeath, of their new life, if you will, uh, is that they decide that they're going to try to solve mysteries, um, which is just a fun thing for boys, particularly at that age, to think that they'll do with their new best friend is like, we might as well solve mysteries, particularly murder mysteries, because we're dead. So we, you know, very much can uh, sympathize with uh, <laughs> what um, <laughs> victims maybe have experienced themselves. So right, not just dead, but they've they've been murdered. Yes, right? and yes. so yeah, they're 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 perfect for that. And yeah, I I remember the Children's Crusade. I I, I think maybe you, one could describe it as a kind of Vertigo crossover event. It's probably not technically right, but it's something similar to that anyway. No, I think that that's probably the best way to refer to it actually. Cause it was, uh, and I think it was early in when early in the time frame of when the vertigo imprint came out and you tried DC comics, tried to take a bunch of its kind of mature readers comics, tag them with the vertigo imprint to, to kind of label them as mature readers. But then the idea of with a lot of crossovers is to get you to try comics you wouldn't otherwise try. So having, bits of them bits of the story told where i think there were two anchor issues that were actually children's crusades comics and then the rest of it was annuals of existing comic books that were part of the vertigo franchise and they each kind of loosely touched on the story of uh what was being told i honestly remember very little about that series so we'll have to revisit it in the future but uh i remember picking it all up cuz i was a fan of most, if not all, of the series that it touched upon. Right. And I, I vividly remembering your issues and <laughs> reading reading them in your in your basement. And uh yeah, I would love to revisit that as well. I mean, I love these characters, uh, you know, boy detectives. I mean, that's something I love. In fact, uh, Finch and I just finished up reading the the first Hardy Boys book uh at, at nap time. That was his nap time reading for about a month, and that was a lot of fun. And uh, and then, you know, remembering that these characters got a, a spin-off of their own eventually uh, made me excited to check that out. It'll be a few years before we can get to either of those things, but that would be a lot of fun. Something else we we need to say before we move into talking about the cover and the title and our favorite panels is just that this also is kind of a a shtick that Gaiman has, this idea of a living boy and a dead boy uh, becoming friends with each other or, you know, uh, a living yeah a living boy having friends who are dead at any rate is something that we have seen already in the story October in the chair and is something that perhaps we will see again if we're ever able to cover the the graveyard book and so yeah this is an idea that Gaiman really really loves yeah it, it certainly is um something that you know we've seen before and uh we will see again um not necessarily these characters again but uh it's it's it it's fun to think about um and it's it's a fun way for him to blend in a lot of kind of the metaphysics he loves with telling some kind of straight-laced stories where you can have at least one of the characters be quote-unquote normal, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it gives us an audience surrogate, right? Is the the living person, and then allows the you know the dead character to do some of the world building, right? To invite the friend into the the supernatural elements, right? And so it is a great device. It's a great gimmick, and yeah, I mean, Gaiman has certainly uh, an uh, an affection for writing those stories, and well, I have an affection for reading them, so yeah. I'm happy he does. And, and the story also works as a nice kind of you know very thinly veiled reference to what it's like to to leave school right cuz pain is scared to do so but roland helps you know give him the courage to realize 
no, you, we can just leave here. And that's something that's in the past. And it, it very much kind of molds and defines who we are. We, neither of us really made it out alive. Um, but nonetheless, that is not the only thing that defines us. We are not, we don't have to stay in this place. We don't need to be those items that are stuck in the attic where our bones are, literally where both of their bones are. We don't need to stay with our bones. We can be free to, to roam and go somewhere else. We're not connected to those bones anymore. Um, and I think that that's kind of a freeing way to view kind of, you know, ascending to different levels of education or completing your education even. Um, not that education is something that you should ever really complete. Uh, lifelong learning is good, but still um, kind of formal institutionalized. All right. Well, let's talk about the cover, Brent. This is an interesting choice. This cover is a series of nine photos of uh, a little boy, probably around five years old. So not the age of any of the, the students here at this school. It's almost certainly the same photo, but Dave McKean has colored the images differently or given us, you know, slightly different uh, zooms and, and, and focuses, and then also put uh, something that looks like it's a, a, you know, a curtain uh, in front of the image in different places so that it's, it's not maybe immediately recognizable that it's the same exact photo. And uh, what happens here, right, with these nine photos is that they're all arrayed in a grid. Uh, I mean, it's basically the D&D alignment grid, except that it's pictures of this little boy. Uh, so, it's, yeah, it's an interesting cover. Yeah, it's great. And the way that the um, – whatever he's putting over each of the photos, it, it, it plays to me like candlelight that's flickering um, on each of them. Um, if I try to run them together as if it's a movie, that that's kind of how I'm viewing it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I really like it. Um, and it's, it's also, you know, showing you part of the boy. You never see the full picture. Um, and they kind of change and there's different shades to it, you know, either to go with different seasons or, you know, different bits that you're seeing as either, you know, a third party viewing it or as the boy trying to understand himself if he's looking at his own photos. Um, I do have from the dust covers, uh, the Dave McKeon, uh, cover collection for the Sandman comics, a comment here from Neil Gaiman about this cover. Uh, Neil says, uh, if you're the writer, People ask you to sign the covers of their comics. If you're me, you tend to dot the I's, which Dave wishes I wouldn't. But as I point out to him, there are still going to be 98,000 copies out there I haven't defaced. And it keeps me interested <laughs> while I sign. I only mention this because I discovered that a little gold or silver on the eyes of any of the nine images on this cover renders it amazingly creepy. And I imagine it would. Yeah, that's a great comment. I mean, it certainly would because that's exactly how the dead people inside this story actually look. Well, let's move into the the title, Brandon. As we've been been doing here for Season of Mist, you know, there is not really any title to talk about here, but we have this sort of uh, uh, Victorian style teaser text. We do, uh, and for this issue, it is in which the dead return and Charles Roland concludes his education. Right, uh, formal education. We should we should add, right? Because he's actually about to go out into the world and uh, definitely continue doing some some learning. But yeah, this is a great a, a great tease here, right? I mean, just the juxtaposition of these two things, right? One of them totally mundane, right? Just a you know person matriculating from school, and then also this great big huge you know like world shattering event of the dead return. That's a perfect juxtaposition, and I love it. And and something we didn't really talk about in this story and or haven't talked about much at all is that this is awfully zoomed in <laughs> for something that must be a massive and unsettling event right around the world right the hell has been emptied all the dead people who were there are coming back to earth or perhaps whatever other planet they might be from and this must be happening everywhere to everyone but this is really all we have heard of it so far and there are barely any living people affected by this, actually, in this story. This is a story largely about one boy and his encounters with some ghosts. Well, it centers on the one boy, but I'd argue that we see three or perhaps four other, uh, I mean, total living people, because the matron obviously is affected by this. 
Um, the headmaster is affected by this. Uh, and the groundskeeper. You left off the groundskeeper. Oh, and the groundskeeper, uh, as, right. as well, right? We get him in one panel. But yeah, I guess what I mean, Brent, is that we're not getting any shots here of how dead people coming back is screwing up traffic as people are trying to get to work. <laughs> yeah. No, I think this is uh, – it, it reminds me of the 24 Hours in the Diner story, right? Where we get the television of things going on on a broader, even worldwide scale – um, but we get the personalized story of what's happening to people in the diner. And in this, we kind of don't get the television telling us what's going elsewhere. We just get what's going on for the people in the diner. And that itself is terrifying enough. And you don't necessarily – you leave it to the reader to extrapolate what this would be like for everyone to experience on the world all at once. Yeah. And so in that way, it's a really interesting choice to just zoom in on this story about a place that, although, yes, you're right, Brandon, it has more, more living people than I said were there. It is still, you know, largely empty of, of living people, right? That there's a, a small percentage of, of, of people here than there would be during term. And yeah, I just find that to be in itself an interesting way to, tell us a story, a single story. And I think it's the only one we ever get about this event. And of course, you could have done an entire book about this event, uh, a, a kind of companion piece. And I, I've invoked this before, right? Where I would love to read a book that's just short stories about different people going through this. Or um, uh, if anyone wants to take us up on writing an adaptation and doing it on our Clay Temple Media forums. Um, there was a note that Leslie Klinger has that in an earlier version of the script, uh, Barrow, Cheeseman, and Skinner are trapped in their own mystical circle in the attic and now are demons themselves. Um, and so that is an adaptation if anyone of our listeners wants to take us up on uh, uh, just, uh, you know, what revisions they would make to the script to have that be their fate. Yeah, that's a great, great writing prompt. I might, I might take that one up myself, Brent. Well, did you have a favorite panel? I was tempted for my favorite panel to be um, when Death makes an appearance, just because I love the outfit she's depicted in. Um, but I struggled with kind of how I was feeling at that point in the comic, because I felt like I was dealing with very dark, serious things. And um, it was almost too much comic relief when um, death steps in. Um, so I did not go with that. Uh, ultimately, I went with um, on that last page, uh, as you mentioned, the image of Payne and Roland leaving school and it's a bright, sunny day out. We have a lot more kind of lush color than we had up to this point. And there's an image, uh, particularly of the two of them hand in hand walking through the gate and Payne has just thrown his hat towards the uh, fence post. It hasn't yet landed. It'll land on the next, it'll land on the next panel. Um, and Payne says, I'm game. If you are, or you can call me Edwin, you know, if you want to. And Roland responds, Oh, fair enough. I'm Charles, which is a great, like the boys are finally escaping their own personal hells, quite literally for Payne, um, and happily going off into the sunrise instead of the sunset. Um, hand in hand um and it's just it's 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 a great kind of relief image after seeing how much hearing about the terrible things that happened to pain and seeing the terrible things that happened to Roland to see them kind of end up on top at the end anyways uh is is kind of heartwarming and um it's just it's literally a brighter place than we've been for the entire issue yeah, I mean, they they escape, right? They've been living in their own hell uh, here in this school. Of course, Payne also perhaps living in in a literal hell. But yeah, th this is the escape scene, and it is beautiful and bright. It actually looks really quite a bit like the color scheme that we get in a Midsummer Night's Dream as as well, right? That that what's highlighted here really on this whole page is uh, just how beautiful the English countryside is, and it's a great, beautiful world for them to to walk out into. And it's it's kind of a happy ending, even though both of these kids have been murdered by the same three people. It still feels like a happy ending. So what was your favorite panel? My favorite panel is this establishing shot of the Great Hall, this uh, this meal room that we see at the start of the flashback story. I, I think it's just a really awesome room on its own. It's got high ceilings with 
overhead lighting that hangs down over the tables. It's got gigantic windows. It's got cyclopean portraits of uh, <laughs> presumably people who are former headmasters. And I just love the aesthetic of that. But it is also a room that you know, to me at least, is simultaneously imposing and inviting. And ultimately, Brent, I guess what I'm trying to say about this is that as we have discussed at least obliquely already on this episode is that you and I spent a lot of time sitting together at a lunch table at O'Neill Junior High and I wish that lunchroom had looked more like this lunchroom and I would even exchange the smells as well. <laughs> yeah, I really love this panel, Glenn. Um, and I, I love the vaulted ceilings um, and the giant portraits, even if they're of, you know, grizzled, old, angry headmasters. It still would have been <laughs> fun to have those uh, hanging in the cafeteria. And I love that the art, that the, the long stretch of tables come across as weathered, but also very clean. Like someone definitely, the janitorial staff has gone through and cleaned every part of the room, but where the three characters are sitting and the little kind of halo in the color for the light around them of, you know, just the small bit is illuminated. The rest of the room is not. So it's just kind of the, the absence of all of these other people, which eventually, you know, when we see not this room again, um, it kind of would have been great if we had returned to the standing facility, I think, with the ghosts in it. But because they don't eat, you can't do that. So we have the auditorium where it's all full, but uh, it's definitely the absence of the living being away on holiday and, you know, the dead who uh, are until later not returning to the space um, very much kind of are there. It's it's. A, it's a great picture about what's not there in some ways. Right. Because in, in normal operation, I mean, this room would just be full of uh, of noisy adolescents, right? And so the, the whole aesthetic feeling of this room would be very, very, very different, right? We would be uh, not even thinking about this so much in terms of what it looks like. We would be thinking of more in terms, I think, of, yeah, what it sounds like and what it smells like. And so it would be a very different experience of this room. We can only get this type of experience experience of this room in the absence of these people. And there is a feeling of absence here in the way that this is depicted, which I, I don't think I had quite uh, picked up on. And I'm glad you articulated that, Brent. And I guess speaking of absence, uh, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like to support the show and in, indeed the entire network, please check us out on patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Your support keeps everything that we do here on the network up and running. And you also get access to, at this point, uh, dozens and dozens of bonus episodes. And we're so grateful for the help and the support that we get. Next month, we will be back with Season of Mist, Chapter 5. We're going to get back to the, the main thrust of what this uh, story arc is about. But until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>